Welcome to Well Good Movies, the podcast which asks which movies are well worth watching and remembering for all time. Every episode, we discuss a different piece of film history to decide if it should make its way into our movie vault. Filled with questions, trivia, and crazy challenges, it's the perfect way to deep dive into a myriad of movies. But don't just take my word for it. Here's a glimpse of what to expect in today's episode. You know, when something goes wrong on stage, you're like, everyone would be like, Ooh, you know, like you wouldn't be laughing at it. You'd just be like, oh God, that no, just went you, wrong. You say that, I... You, you know, uh, when I went to watch a production of Oliver, I laughed when Oliver got hit in the head with a coffin. Well, lid. that's you. <laughs> but um, that is not just me. <laughs> that I'm sure there are other people out there who would laugh at that. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Are you not entertained? I am the I'll be back. supposed to blow the bloody doors off well good movies hello and welcome to well good movies the podcast that asks which of the movies well worth watching and which deserve to be remembered for all time i'm your host david osger and i'm joined by my co-host the broadway diva that is craig mcdonald Hello, Craig. Hello. That was the easiest switch I've ever had to do in terms of uh, your introduction from last time. Just change out one word. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I'm not sure if that's a case of you being finding easy way around or if it's just you being lazy. Both. <laughs> but yeah, from the vibe I'm getting from you, you're kind of done with performance-based films now at this stage. Yeah, so I mean, I'm not... I, I don't know how to describe it, but like people say that i try i create these sort of rabbit holes i don't i i, I, I say that <laughs> yeah i don't i create films that try to give us like a breadth of diversity and then everyone else decides nah we're just going to go in one singular direction uh so by the end of this a, like a type of film that i would usually love which is just a discussion of how people interact with the industry in some way shape or form uh i'm done to death with it now so if we can if we can move the f- on that'd be that'd be great guys don't worry. Well, hopefully Halloween will be a good um, icebreaker for that. But um, as we said before recording as well, I do think it's interesting. If probably if we were to continue, it would be so tempting to choose that one missing industry because so far we've had showgirls showing, you know, the showgirl industry. We've had the Neon Demon showing fashion. We've had All About Eve with Hollywood. Now this week's film is sort of theatre world. So we're only kind of really missing like the music industry at this stage, which has been brought up in comparisons quite a bit over the last few weeks. Yeah, but what even would the the Halloween music industry deep dive even be? (laughs) Again, another film that's been mentioned recently is, you know, we want to go into the world of dance, which I know wouldn't be the film suggested, but it's a film that we've mentioned, which could be, you know, it's not really a horror film, but somebody people could say it has horror elements, but we're not going back to that conversation again. Well, yet. We're not going back to it yet. But yeah, performance-based films. It's very interesting how uh, we've flipped back and forth between the films that have influenced these types of films, then back to the ones that, yeah, sort of the influencers, the ones that have been influenced, different industries. Uh, so it's sure to be an interesting conversation. Uh, joining us this week as well is back over in the movie vault helping us out is our resident film brain Stefanos Florakis. Hello Stefanos. Hello there. 
is I mean, I was, I was going to say it's been long, but it actually hasn't. Uh, <laughs> no, exactly. And my apologies uh, to Greg. Uh, when I was thinking about my picks, I didn't consider about this trauma that it would cause to you. So apologies for <laughs> now. That's fine. It's not a guarantee that we're getting your film, so... And this week is, you know, that was Sarah, as we'll get on to soon in terms of how we came here. But uh, but yeah, you are partially responsible in that sense. But but last time, essentially, once you knew that that was the film, you were kind of like, okay, I need to be on board for this discussion as well. It was far more the idea of seeing your reactions of both from both of you, because mm. based to all the conversations we had, I think I have an idea to how this is this specific episode is going to go and i'm gonna have i think that i think that'll be a fun prediction to actually have but so once we get all the sort of actual details of the film out there we'll go to your prediction as to what you think (laughs) is going to happen and then we'll see if that actually pans out especially because i had my prediction of how you would experience it as well which we talked about before yeah which you decided not to tell me (laughs) yeah so Craig, you're back in VHS Corner this week as well, so uh, you'll be covering off the facts. Uh, Let's go to the now showing section. So Craig, can you tell us how we came to talk about this week's movie and what it is? So in the last episode, in our last endgame, we had Steph and Sarah take each other on. In the end, Steph was the winner, but decided to go with the choice from Sarah. So discussing in this week's episode... We have, from 1977, Opening Night. So, to give you a little idea of what this film is about, a young woman gets killed in an accident trying to meet her favourite actress, Myrtle Gordon, after a play. Then, Myrtle herself felt responsible for the killing, leading her down an emotional crisis that interferes with her professional work as an actress. So this is uh, directed, written, and starring John Cassavetes, Um, playing uh, Maurice Ahrens. The music was by Bo Harwood. Whatever little music there was, I should stress about this film. Uh, Cinematography by Al Rubin. Editing by Tom Cornwall. And also starring alongside uh, Cassavetes, we have Gina Rowlands as Myrtle Gordon, Ben Gazzara as Manny Victor, Joan Blondell as Sarah Good, Paul Stewart as David Samuels, Zora Lampert as Dorothy Victor, Laura Johnson as Nancy Stein, and John Toole as Gus Simmons. So, that is the film that we're discussing this week. What I'm trying to say is that you're a delicate, experienced, exciting woman who I find attractive beyond comprehension. A woman who amazes me with a lack of belief in herself. As evident there as well, and as we teased at the beginning, I think this definitely is going to be an interesting conversation. Nice to be over to a film from the 70s as well, so we're continuing to go through a few different eras now as of late. Uh, We're out of the kind of 90s and the 80s era, which we were stuck in for quite a while at one point in the year. Uh, But yeah, 
we're going to deep dive into opening night and eventually ask the question of whether it deserves the honor of a place in our movie vault, our vault that encapsulates memorable movies for all time. And we've not had an entry now for four episodes, uh, which is interesting. So going into last time, it was three, but still we have not had a movie vault entry uh, for quite some time. Now, yeah, opening night, as we've already sort of teased, when that was suggested, uh, Stefanos said that you were a fan of this film, so you were happy to come on to this episode to discuss it and, as you said, predict our reactions. And I guess probably it, it's best to sort of get that bit out of the way and sort of go into that early on. So so what do you think, what is your assumption of uh, how we feel about this film? Yeah, and to be fair, it's also a film that I haven't rewatched for a long time. So when I rewatched it a couple of days ago... I was sort of always keeping in my head the two of you as a back audience. I tried to, to think what the kind of comments you would say on the specific scene, on the specific like uh, line as well. And so what I think it will be the case is you, Dave, would be someone who would say like you appreciate the acting and the, the filmmaking, especially for its time. But I don't. But I don't know how would you feel about the overall message in the end of it. And as for you, Greg, I can see you. There were times you would be very frustrated, but you would appreciate the same thing as Dave with some of the acting, especially from Gina Rowlands. But overall, based again from your experience with all about Eve. I think some of the criticism that you had for that film kind of will be repeated here. But I think you will enjoy far more the cynicism of this one over with Eve. How close am I? Well, that's what's interesting is that it's almost like this is like an end game challenge in itself. Because especially when we are talking about, like you said, similar films. So it's more easy to gauge, okay, well, this is how they felt about All About Eve. This is how they felt about neon demon etc etc so you can kind of compare them more and yeah a lot of the times we probably do have those more traditional reactions in which a few weeks ago you know with brain dead i said you know i was watching that and i was instantly like oh i know craig is not gonna enjoy this whereas this one as i teased earlier my reaction in terms of what craig would be thinking was like i'm not sure what craig will make of this but my my reaction was also I'm not sure what I make of it quite fully as well. Like, I don't know where I quite land on it. And I think you are right in some of your assumptions. I think that, yeah, there's definitely a lot of this film I appreciate. But I, I don't know if I would go as far to say that um, I'm not sure if I don't like the ending or if there's anything that I'm sort of... The, the uncertainty is not so much from a negative point of view of like, oh, I'm not sure if that quite worked for me. It It didn't quite click. I think it's just I was... Yeah, just left kind of feeling, I'm not sure where I come down on this. And again, I don't know if that would be helped by anything like a rewatch. I think that it's just so different and kind of out there at times. But then I appreciate what it's doing so many times. But obviously, I think over the years, we've had other versions of this story, which I don't know if you could say have done it better. Because again, I think that this has a lot of strengths, which it does better over other films. But even technically in the way it's doing its storytelling is very different, which I think is very evident to the type of film that we're looking at for this time period in that director. So 
yeah, overall, I, I'm just unsure, but do respect a lot of it. But in terms of like, w- sort of looking at it just as one piece of media, like my one opinion, I don't know if I can put sort of like one, one statement or kind of one rating. It's, it's quite a tricky one. As for me, I'm genuinely confused. Um, yeah, so I mean, there's a lot about this film that I like. And also I'm a big fan of, of films that are about theatre and very much try to take the approach of this is basically just like a play within a play, right? This isn't to sort of flip a uh, like a critique that David has had this entire year so far. This is the first film that we've watched this year that doesn't feel like a film to me. Um, it does feel like we're just watching a lot of just shots of various parts of theater. Um, my big thing obviously comes down to the degree to which she's essentially being haunted. Right. So I think that there are times in which I'm unclear as to whether or not the film is actually, actually playing the, the psychological presence of, of the dead woman to the extent that it should be, which has me a bit flustered as to why certain, certain things happen in the way that they do. And I think there are times where when it's evident there's like something going on, I actually think it's quite impactful. So all the scenes that you get of, say, her being beaten up, um, I think are incredibly effective. But the way in which it affects how she performs, uh, I I don't see it as consistently. So there are times in which I'm just unsure as to whether or not the film is actually like bigging up its own essential premise um, or if there are other premises, I think they just needed to establish them a lot more clearly. Um, So again, I don't know if this means that I, like, I don't, I don't dislike this film. Like, I don't think I, I I don't think I watched it with like any level of disdain. Like I think I have done a couple of the films um, in this recent uh, performing arts sort of string, but I'm, I'm genuinely confused speaking about yeah it's style and you know the haunting aspect as well like i think that largely worked for me um and again i i'm glad that it kind of holds back in some ways that i think a more modern film could go more horror with it or more dark um so i like its restraint to some extent but again with the ending i was still you know again i don't find myself there like there was nothing in this in which I was like, oh, you know, I, I don't quite like how you've done that or I wouldn't have done it this way. This isn't where I saw it going. I think that I was still quite captivated by it throughout, but I wasn't there with any sense of expectation. So I think like many films, which I can view as like, oh, I see why that's famous. I see why that's successful. But again, whether I'm sort of like into it or not, that's a different sort of circumstance so i think this one again is a kind of like yeah i can appreciate that and i'm not as widely as invested into it but again it's not like a neon demon it wasn't like the end of that film it was in which i was like oh really that's how you're gonna end what what was that was this i did feel more satisfied by the end i felt that it built up quite well and on the whole i thought it was you know well contained but it's like you said, Steph, it's just that, that one end note of like, where's the haunting aspect gone? I'm like, oh, okay, is this fine? But I'm also like there questioning, is that the point? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? And I'm not sure. So yeah, I'm curious to know what you think in terms of having revisited it as well. You know, what was your first reaction when you first saw this? How did you remember it? And what is your opinion on rewatching it? So I am very glad for the answers you both gave, because you're right. We don't, we have no idea to what Casabetes was doing back then. (laughs) 
he was literally one of those very first filmmakers that basically was trying to not follow the Hollywood like techniques or stories. Like he was, he was trying to always to do the opposites to what he was well known back then. And when us, when I remember, and I remember when I watched this film for the first time, it was when I was first introduced to Cassavetes in his other like more critically acclaimed, even though this is very critically acclaimed actually, which I kind of was surprised. And it was one of those films that I just binge watched. I just did a big marathon of all his filmography. And it was one of those that were part of it. Now, from what I remember, I remember that I liked it. I remember I was really into it. But I can say that the main reason I was very into it is because it, I watched it back in 2010, which was after I had seen Black Swan. So, yeah, so because I love Black Swan so much, the fact that I then watch an older film, it has very similar themes and tropes too, and being being made by a director that I just was introduced to and I was really into, kind of became sort of like weird, like long relative of, of this new film that I loved so much. So I kind of associated those two together for a long time. And and I was really into it. But same as you guys, I was also very confused. And I still am, because then I rewatched it a couple of days ago. And I still am like, I think I understand. But there's something else happens. And I'm like, okay, I think I'm wrong. But there's something <laughs> yeah. else again happens. I'm like, maybe I'm right. And just be doing that over and over again, which is which I like that most of the cases, because like like you guys said, it's challenging. It is something different, even to our standards right now. This is a bit more of a. It feels a bit of a hard work to get around it. I know for some people it's not very attractive, but for me, I am kind of into that kind of like narratives. And as for the meaning of it, um, there's many. Like, <laughs> I, I think there's too many in there to yep. analyze. And I've seen, and I did read some theories as well. Um, they're not that many, but but there's some interesting ones. And from what I remember from all the films I have seen from Casavetes, this is the one. Surprisingly, why we just said that it is very experimental, it is very difficult to really fully comprehend to what it means. It's actually one of his most approachable films because of the fact that he has yes, because of the fact that he has that haunting, less almost like horror-esque element into it. Uh, which then again. I this begs the question, is it actually real or not? Yeah, I think you are right in the sense that, as we've mentioned, the fact it's challenging, um, but there's still an element of you can follow it and you can take your assumptions. You don't know whether you're right or wrong. But again, I think it's not to the detriment of the movie. It almost seems that that is the point. But it's also not quite like what we were having with the Neon Demon again, in which I was kind of like, well, this just comes off as pretentious or kind of like style and no substance. 
in which it's like, oh, do you understand this? What is the meaning of that? It did, you know, it didn't seem to be kind of like outstaying its welcome or kind of trying to be too bold or too artistic. I think, like you said, Stefanos, I think it's the fact that the director is clearly going for like, well, I want to do the opposite and let's see what people make of that. You know, I'm open to interpretation and just kind of throwing it out there and and seeing what people's reading is. It, it kind of seems to me as if he's a director or this is the type of film in which they would be happy to open up that discussion. It's not kind of like, oh, if you didn't understand what that meant, then you didn't understand the film. I think it seems like the type of film in which the director would happily be like, oh, you read it that way? Oh, that's interesting. You know, like, I, I don't even think he would have an answer of like, this is what it was meant to mean. Do, do you know what I mean? I mean, so much of it seems to be, because obviously um, he's been known to not only just write and direct, but also star in his own films, right? This definitely comes off as that sort of interpretation of, these are all the things I thought about, like, as an actor, I thought about character sort of motivations, why not I just write scripts in which all of these motivations are potentially present and then it's to what people sort of read into it most. Um, which can be quite fascinating, but it can also just be a little bit of a cluster when you don't sort of try and narrow down what you specifically want there to be in the messaging. Mm. Um, so it just comes off as like a fan, exp- uh, like a bit of a fan experiment. Um but also, it's interesting you say about the wanting to do, like, opposite to Hollywood. I think that's evident from, like, the first minute of the film, where it literally... So, Steph, did you have the same experience with David and I? Because we both... We discussed this before the episode, but because the film basically just starts you, like, what feels like right in the middle of a scene, it it makes it feel like there's, like, a, like a couple of seconds missing, to the point that both of us sort of, like, pause and, like, rewound over and over again to make sure that we hadn't just skipped over something well again and it's the same thing of just that comfort of you know is it a film but the fact that it doesn't have the studio logos and everything even it's you know kind of going almost george lucas in the sense of you know i want to have this long time ago in a galaxy far far away i don't want any names to kind of take people out of that Yeah, but moment. even that's a framing device yeah, there's exactly. no framing yeah, device this just feels like you just switched over tv channel or something like that no that is that is that is something that he does a yeah. lot uh, the thing that John Cassavetes was really well known of, uh, there was multiple things, but one of the things is the fact that his films, I, either they will start abruptly, like like you guys explained, or it will end abruptly. Like it, it basically almost trying to show you a, like a piece of someone's life, but it doesn't start with the beginning of the life and then it ends with the with the like the final parts of the life. Then it's still going on beyond the film. It's just it's still existing. It's just we're not able to see it. And and yeah, and the fact that he doesn't uh, include like studio logos or like uh, the production logos or something like that again is more or less his whole career. And um, me and and for a lot of people and especially back then. He was almost called the father of independent cinema in America because of the fact that he was one of he wasn't the he wasn't the first obviously but he was one of the first people to make independent cinema in the U.S. mainstream to actually bring into awareness and so and becoming one of those people that became the founders of the new Hollywood era like we're talking like. You know, early like very like early first years of Spielberg, Scorsese, you know, Francis Francopola, 
where these people who grew up with independent cinema, mostly from Europe, go to Hollywood and then they make that kind of films, but with actual studio budgets. Yeah, because Avengers was doing the same, but without the Hollywood studio budget. Yeah, well, that's what I thought was interesting as well, is like looking at that era again of the 70s, because we focused so much recently on like the 80s, the 90s, and then the 50s, you know, in the last episode. You know, it is interesting when you look at this period to as opposed to like your big blockbusters like James Bond and those kind of films, you know, you look at to some extent, maybe Jaws, but obviously that became a summer sort of blockbuster, but I think it's, you know, cut from in some ways, similar cloth of, you know, Taxi Driver and Clockwork Orange in which it's kind of like experimenting more with kind of like human stories, dark tales, you know, kind of bold, dramatic choices, big scores and, more nitty gritty cinema i guess in a way i guess as you went into the 80s and franchises and everything like that became a bigger thing that's where hollywood became a bit more polished you know we had it slightly maybe last year with hitchcock which would then be like the sort of latter part of his career but with frenzy it reminds me a bit of that as well of having that kind of like darker storytelling something a bit like odd a bit more niche um which seems to come from these directors as you were saying stefanos who have something to say and are sort of influenced by independent cinema or by certain stories or certain ways of storytelling. It is quite ironic that in the age of what's meant to be free love, loads and loads mm-hmm. of creatives just go, yeah, and also lack of repression. Let's just get all of those things that we've been thinking about and just, let's just do these stories now, shall we? Let's just watch a woman be hit by a car and die. I was watching this, I was like, are there any good men in these this era of film? <laughs> they're not. They're often painted as just I'm cheating on my wife and then this type of guy. I'm like this. I this feel like man the exists. I feel like the one actor who was just like, nah, I'm not yeah. up for this. I was like, yeah, good, good. Yeah. You're, you're you're playing this sensibly. I think they just had like two archetypes essentially. But yeah, Stefanos, what's what's your kind of feeling towards? You, you've touched on it a bit there in terms of the director, but. Do you think it is kind of of that era of Hollywood? Do you do you think of this as typical of that time? So it was during the time there was this basically this uh, switch point in the late sixties, and it was a lot of different things happening during that time. It was at uh, the end of the Vietnam War. It was uh, around the time of the Watergate uh, scandal, where. Basically, the U.S. media starting realizing the faults of their own government, and and so when you when you think like that was before that, it was during the like the post-war era where Americans thought that they stopped the Second World War and everything about the country is like the correct and the right thing to do. But the late sixties basically made a turn, a huge turn to the political landscape, starting thinking, oh, maybe we're not the good guys. Maybe we have done a lot of wrong things and I need to question everything around me, especially the people in charge. So that is basically why we call it the new Hollywood era, because of the fact we got all these filmmakers that we just mentioned who have been part of those movements, have been part of the people who started realizing all the faults and starting protesting against them. And now they become filmmakers and then trying to view their own feelings and 
of rebellion, of disdain, and all that, all those things that starting realizing, and not a lot of people have been able to see into the film. And uh, I mean, Jaws is a very good example because Jaws, even though yes, it is the first summer blockbuster, but in reality, it's about uh, good people trying to to save innocence from an economic disaster, but the main officials of the government do nothing because they want profit. That is the actual story of Jaws. It's just disguised as a monster film. And that is basically what happened since then. Like every a lot of the films from all those acclaimed tours, in one way or the other, they are bringing some level of criticism. And yes, Casavetes very much is someone who loves criticizing people um, and like his actual objective in most of his films is to present unlikable characters uh, because of the fact of all those years of classic Hollywood films which we always have the always honorable hero and the innocent female character uh, over and over again he tries to switch them and he does that with almost his, all his films um, I don't want to say all his films are cynical. No, I do think some of them are actually very heartfelt and have a positive emotional um, energy to them. But most of the cases, he does try to challenge the viewer to how they can feel about a character. And, and you know, you can say like everything now on TV, like when we call like prestige, like golden era TV television shows, more or less have that now. Like, look at Breaking Bad, Mad Men, Sopranos, even Fleabag as well. Like, the, like the, the lead character, she is more or less unlikable in most cases, but because of the comedy, they're able to subvert that. So, Casavetes is one of those people who managed to bring in that sort of idea of the world in cinema. And even though the, not a lot of people talk about him now, mainly because of the fact that he was so independent, so uh, low-key than all the other big names like Spielberg and Scorsese, uh, but he managed to make an impact nonetheless. Uh, so much so that the Independent Spirit Awards have an award literally named after him, which is not even like a competitive award. It's actually like an honorary award to celebrate uh, actors and filmmakers in specific films every year. And they're able to get, I think, some um, some money so they'd be able to promote the film more. So, yeah. So even though he's someone that's not as popular, he still has made an impact into the independent world in uh, in the US and even like one of my favorite directors Chloe Zhao uh, a lot of her filmmaking work is sort of inspired by him as well like because she also does exactly the same thing see all her films have they don't really have a beginning and an ending they're just a slice of life of this uh, of this wonderful people in a specific area that's it's part of the like um, of the American dream. Um, so yeah, so 
so yeah, there's a lot of different things in here, and and I do believe opening night to some degree presents that, especially the unlikable characters and especially the male characters. Um, as the basically what they do most of the time is literally just gaslighting her and trying to manipulate her to the point where she literally just needs to sleep and to sober up. But now we need, we're going to force her to play all the way to the yeah. end. And, and, but that's what's, like you said, with those films you were mentioning is that, yeah, at that time they did seem to very much focus on like the villains or like characters who were unlikable, like you said, in something like Taxi Driver, again, where we were talking about like Frenzy last year, in which you're literally following the villain almost essentially. But even a lot of the films that we've also looked at as well, like even like, last episode all yeah. about eve the fact we've had that sunset boulevard mm. there have been lots of films around around even years before that which mm. just looks at just these people you know not that great no but and as well and that shows different sensibilities of not groups of characters or not you know like supporting main roles like this again is that idea of like this is the one character and we're going in on them so i think that's why it's you know a good point to sort of talk about myrtle as the character because obviously she is the center point you know we will get back to discussing the men who sort of influence and uh, affect her decision decisions and her life but yeah i think obviously it is essential for this film that she has a captivating performance and a captivating story um and i think that you know a lot of why this film works is because of her i think that you know if it was a bad performance then that would sort of certainly change things. Um, and I think it is really captivating. I think that there's a lot of realism there. Um, I think her reactions are very kind of realistic and sort of honest. And I think it's it's that right balance of showing the kind of insanity, um, but also rational frustrations and anger and again that idea that we said before like is this what they mean is that you know what is that is that what they're trying to say and i think she's doing a good job of walking that line of not trying to make it clear any one way or the other because i think a performance can do that even if a director or writer doesn't quite know what they want to say or they want to leave it up to the audience a performance could influence that i think gina Rowlands here is doing a good job of yeah leaving that interpretation more open to the audience in the way that you know again the script is helping with that but i think a lot of her reactions um are helping with that i think very much her her moments on stage compared to her moments off stage are fascinating and obviously her confrontations with the ghost the young girl that she's fabricated whatever you want to say um, I think those, you know, it, it's almost again as if there's like three versions or three, four versions of this character within within the film. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned about all those aspects about General's acting, because one of the things that Casabetes was doing with all his films is that he really put emphasis on the actors, like, like, in a, like in almost every other film back then, they were trying to do everything as it was on the script. Like, and you rarely what actually what the writers wanted to write. It was mostly what the, the studio, the producers wanted to include in. And that became the most important part of uh, the script. But with Casavetes, he didn't care as much because he wanted to give the freedom to the actors 
to see what is fitting for that character. And this is basically what kind of became sort of like a school of uh, character actors very much so. And with uh, Regina being, you know, his wife as well, that really brought a lot of help to figure out, you know, this character to how she feels, to why, how would she react in the same situation? And and uh, one of the things that they used a lot, um, I'm not really sure about this film, but, but I don't know if this film specifically, but I know in other films, in, improv was a big thing yeah. uh, in their careers. And in the play. <laughs> and in the play, because uh, I do believe the final parts, in, like in the end, with Myrtle and Maurice, which it literally is Gina and and, and Casavetes themselves. I think the whole thing is improvised because I I have have read that them two were doing like that this kind of sort of like improv at their own homes and then parties all the time. So that is like something completely on their own, and and I think that is sort of like the charm of it and. And I think that's the one reason why I loved his film so much because of the fact that I am I am a sucker for good actors in general, for good acting. And the fact that they always brought the A-game in everything, that really was something to look forward to. And But yeah, like, but still, like the fact that I still don't know what is real or not in there. Um, I even read a theory that... This might the whole film could be actually a play, like, like what we're actually seeing the whole thing. It's not actually real. It is a play within a play within a play, and what we see actually in the ends where where the credits shut down, that isn't Myrtle. That is the actor playing Myrtle. (laughs) (laughs) That that's yeah, quite a rabbit hole to go down. I mean. I just don't think that theory adds anything to the film, though. Like at the point where we're already having to absorb absorb it as a piece of media, I don't think I don't think it's does anything to go. Ha! You think it's this piece of media? It's not. It's actually yeah. this type of media. I, I think, I'm just like, well, what's the point? I think it works in the sense of like, if you don't want to take it literally, if you take it as like it reflecting what the film is often trying to do, which I think is again one of the strengths. Because interestingly, and I think both of you will maybe reacted very different ways to this but at the beginning of it i was think i was getting kind of paul thomas anderson vibes to some degree and stefano's that you know that might paint you know how you view it as well in terms of something like phantom thread which as we've discussed before me and craig are less favorable to but it's again because i was getting that reaction of kind of like oh characters which aren't particularly likable um which is you know a film which is very much going for a certain style going for a slice of life and kind of cutting off at weird moments etc cetera, etc cetera. um i could go into maybe why i prefer this over phantom thread but i probably have to rewatch phantom thread which you know may happen again sometime soon but uh yeah let's not cloudy the discussion now <laughs> but i think essentially what i think here is you know one of the great strengths and this is both on the performance and what the camera is doing what the writing doing is that idea of and and yeah definitely in the writing is you know life is a stage and that kind of idea but also making you feel how myrtle feels i think at one point you know it's very clever in what they're saying and again you could view this as like oh it's a part of the script or you know whatever like you know the fake script or something but 
for her to say, oh, you know, I, I can't even get a glass of water without being like harassed. And I think at one point there's a shot in which she's in that like bath, you know, fake bathroom on the stage. And like you can see the audience watching her in the bathroom. I think that there's a lot of moments in that which I really liked, which I was like, that's really effective of kind of giving this idea of like, she feels like she's constantly being watched. And I think the way that the camera constantly has this idea of being behind a pillar, being behind a door, it gives you this unnerving sense that, yeah, somebody is watching you and that you are constantly putting on this performance. And I think the way that she's acting throughout this film, again, dictates that. And I think the fact that all the characters around her treat her in different ways, they all have a, a good direction, I think, in the sense that they've been told to, one, like you said, Steph, be like real people, um, but also interact with characters in certain ways. So there's that stage hand, which is like, you know, constantly complimenting her. Uh, one of my favorite lines, which is like, I've seen a lot of drugs in my time and, you know, no, I haven't seen one, you know, walk around as well as you do. I'm like, wow, if that's not a backhanded compliment, I don't know what is. But her like costume person, I think as well, like, you know, I think you had a, very much a warmth towards her, which you wouldn't get in a stereotypical film in which they're like, this is why you should warm to this character because look, she's making cookies or she's saying this really funny thing, which I think, again, Showgirls is a, an example of, doing that wrong with that character which has you know the funny gag with her boobs and stuff like that in which they want to paint her as this kind of home homely character and this kind of mother type figure which just doesn't work yes this character isn't maybe as big as her but i think what is telling is later on in the film when she's like holding her to the stage and she's sort of like stumbling around she immediately brings her like a coffee once it's done she's like assuring her like you were great tonight you were doing so well and i was like this woman seems like an actual person and she's not there as like a stereotype or to fill a certain role. It feels like she's a fully fleshed person and as if the director said, this is who you are, this is what you're concerned about. And it seemed like she was always in the moment. And I think it was that was the case for all the characters. The producer, for example, he treated her in a very different way. The writer treated her in a very different way. So it, it's, it's very interesting, the characters, how they interact with Myrtle. Yeah, like uh, one of the things I realized is like from the only people or at least actually the only man who actually was nice to Myrtle that was not trying to gain anything was her old doorman <laughs> like like the only the only character that was actually genuinely nice to her he didn't want anything else he just was so happy to see her and yeah, like I said, like it was interesting to see that the only sort of decent people in this whole, like in this film, or at least in her world, were always the ones that usually people like her will look down, uh, down off. Like, like her doorman, uh, the maid in the in the building, and uh, the her see her costume assistants, like everyone who, in some way or the other. And which the whole the whole, the whole ecosystem, as we can see right now, they always kind of think of think of them as expendables. They try to give them a bit more of a humanity, and then the people who actually are in power doing the opposite, which I definitely appreciate it. Uh, that that is why I think this is, even though it is a cynical film, it's not as cynical. Um, like I like the, the like one of the things I really liked in the end, which I didn't realize the first time I watched it, is when uh, the director was telling to Myrtle that there used to be a time where you were able to make me laugh, but the, and then in the end, at the very end, where 
he actually she actually started doing that to him. Like finally she, she's funny and it's not part of the script. That's her. It's completely like complete improv. This is a version of herself presented to everyone else and and everyone basically loving it. It was sort of like the affirmation that she was looking for. And she in the end made the script better. That's and, and yeah, like and that is the stuff which I think if it wasn't for Gina Rowland, I don't think it would have worked anywhere else. Because of the fact, because we've seen her playing this character so many different ways, from the very bottom to the very top, to actually see that cipher in the end was so effective. And it's interesting because um, you never see the play like it's not again like Birdman or something in which you're like watching the same sequence or something like that, or you're like, oh, you know, are they finally going to get this right or anything like that? But her introduction, yes. But I think apart from that, the fact that you see quite a few different segments of the play as well is quite sort of telling in some ways. I just find it weird with the play. And I think this is one of the things that sort of affects my ability to have like a consistency to be able to compare a lot of the film against. Mm. They make allusion as to what this play is meant to be about and like the strong messaging of this play. I have zero idea as to what the hell the message of that play is meant to be, apart from like the snippet that they say, which is just, oh, it's meant to be like a story of just an aging, an aging woman. Like, fine. But what is your actual commentary on that? Because unless I understand the goal that writer wants to set, I have no idea the way in which like her actions are bastardizing this script specifically. And I know they are because obviously by the end it turns into like a weird little comedy that everyone gets on board with. But I just have no grasp as to why it is like the extent to which this writer being so offended at losing that message. I think if this, if the film had just, just knuckled down and just given that to me, mm-hmm. I think all of the other sort of inconsistencies insofar as like, you know, character motivations, right? Because I find it odd that we would have like one scene that implies like that Myrtle is like becoming hysteric for whatever reason. And then in the right, and then in the back scene, so certain as to why it is that she doesn't like playing the character, which is just, Mm. just that sort of critique of, of just, what is it that she says when they're first in the, like the actual back room? Um, what just in terms of like her saying that she's not an old yeah yeah that she's not of, an old woman she shouldn't be playing like an old character because she's not that age and yeah the all thing of, about how old are you she never says etc yeah all of that critique which i think is quite strong but like doesn't seem to warrant the reaction that's on the stage which is why i think even though that they're sort of like tiptoeing the line that oh is it this is it this mm. i think there's a degree to which that forking probably needs to happen a little bit later in the film just so that we have like a little bit more of a contrast as to what it is that her sensibilities necessarily are before I understand where it is that the walking line of insanity necessarily comes in. That's why I'm a bit un- all over the place because I don't know what Myrtle is actually like as a person. Yeah. And I don't know what this play is meant to be like. So when it just goes into all over the shot, I'm I'm just baffled. I think it's it's interesting because again, it's, as it goes back to that thing of it's challenging us. And again, you know, like what does the filmmaker want to say? Does he want us to be clear on that? And I think it's interesting to have a film in which, like you said, you don't know who, who they represent and it questions, you know, was that performance? Is this just them putting up this veil? And I think, like you said, is the fact that there seems to be an element of like, she doesn't want to accept that she is aging. She, you know, like all about Eve, I think that's, you know, one of the main big connections there is that idea of like, 
I'm being replaced. I'm aging. I, you know, I was able to play the younger parts. That is an element. And obviously the fact that she's haunted by this young girl is her lost youth, as we see. But I think because then her retaliation to the play also, I think that's where it is a bit confusing, is that in real life, she seems to be opposed to that aspect of the story. Mm. But the way that they challenge it and alter the play on stage seems to be nothing to do with that framing and yeah especially it seems to be more about like i want to be funny i want to be like you know more i don't want to be dictated to by a man it doesn't seem to be especially considering that the first scene that this comes in it her objection is i don't want to be slapped which Mm. to be fair i think is a a feeling that most performers will perfectly go you know what I understand. And the other one being, I don't understand why that relates to the idea of the woman aging apart from just this loss of power, but that happens at all ages. I don't think that's inherent. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, that's why I think the, the strongest bit of it, I think is like I said, to go back to her performance is this idea of just looking at this. And that's why I'd be interested in what you think about it. Having seen all of these performance films. Yeah. Can we stop with them now though? <laughs> yeah. But what I mean is that, not to say I want to carry on and carry on, but this one to me, it doesn't, I don't come away thinking like, oh yes, you know, this is about this person who wants to replace them, who has, you know, faded away, has become jaded. It is very different in which I was like, I felt like I just watched a woman have a psychological breakdown. I didn't, it seemed like the theater aspect was secondary, which was refreshing. I think just compared to all the other performance films, I think the looking at this to me, I mean, I would agree. I'm not saying it as a critique. I just think it's interesting that it's not as much, I'm glad that it's not as much about the the fame and about that. It's literally about a woman. I mean, I'd agree with, with that if the ending would in some way, shape or form show how the psychological break, mm. uh, specifically of of the fact that she is in her own mind, either in her own mind or there is actually just like a, a f***ing weird ghost running around <laughs> just beating the crap out of this woman. Um, how that actually impacts the performance apart from just she got wasted. Like... It just seems like the sort of you could have this entire film without the need to have had a woman killed, like because it also doesn't make sense to me that they would also have think the scenes like going to a spiritualist, but like which is the oddest scene in the film in my opinion. The spiritualist stuff is weird, and that's again what reminded me of Frenzy is just these weird like kind of like tidbits in the film in which they're like we're going to go to this location and this strange character is going to turn up. But what I do appreciate again about the story overall is that. I am glad that it goes for something different in terms of that character being killed off at the beginning because, again, we've had so many storylines recently of this woman wants your life, this person... So is, many. You know, ...is, you know, really uh, jealous of what, what you've got and, you know, uh, they're seeing themselves and other people or, you know, they're being beloved by so many people. I think to show that kind of, like, somebody's gone to the extent of loving them so much and it's caused cost them their life and the fact that that haunts her for the entire film i think is really effective i I quite like that yeah i mean i just want to know why she blames herself apart from because like she the woman was doing stupid things right if she's literally going to be just standing in the middle of the road like shouting after a car i don't i don't think that's something that's inherent to you my friend i think she'd do that for like anyone i think she'd probably do that for like a cat walking down the sidewalk but again i think that's where it comes down to in a psychological state of just like oh my god like oh yeah true why if she convinced herself yeah why but also myrtle in terms of like how is somebody so obsessed with? No, that's what i'm saying convinced herself that's what this yeah but again then it doesn't make sense why she then continue trying to 
perform to that applause. Yeah, and also the fact that the end of the film seems to go with a kind of... I don't want to say it justifies everything that happens. It's it's a bit like what you were saying, Steph, is that like, oh, she can be funny and that, you know, she she is able to sort of like manipulate the stage and her own story to an extent but also there's an element of like well is this a happy ending because again you're kind of still stuck in the same toxic situation and also what i took away especially because the credits literally freeze you know just for anybody who hasn't watched this to be clear the film ends with the the play having ended um she's been drunk throughout the entire play um but sort of come come away at the end of it kind of like with a standing ovation everyone's sort of like coming to her at the end of the opening night so giving her praise and she's a lot more sober at that stage or she's a lot more with it and she's a lot more smiles and the director's wife comes up to it almost like that fan of like you're amazing oh my god look how beautiful you are and the fact that they hug and it's like she's got that affirmation again so I was sort of left thinking okay am I supposed to take away from this again of like this is now going to be like a vicious circle is it that is it a bad negative thing or is again, is she, is this showing that she's evolved from that and she's able just to keep up that, that veil and that persona now? I agree with you in that sense, in the fact that the, the film circles back to like, oh, well, it is all about fame and it is all yeah. about like her wanting that affirmation rather than sort of everything out, act, happening outside of the, the play and the stage. Steph, w- w- what do you make of the ending? I do think it's like a number of things. It For one, it's, I think it sort of is a commentary on a couple of factors that it was back then quite a lot. One, uh, the dangers of method acting, um, which is we you know we still is still a problem right now, and and the fact that you know method actors go to extreme lengths when it comes to a role, even if it is like an insignificant role compared to other to others. Um, they go to the extreme lengths for them. So that's why I'm sometimes I'm thinking, what if, what if this is not Myrtle and this is actually the character of the play? Why is she trying so hard to be this character? But because this character is so badly written, she's sort of stuck in this limbo of depression and self-destruction. Like I could possibly see that. Uh, but I think the main one, the main sort of uh, like theory that I have, where I think it's a bit closer to the actual intention, is the fear of aging actresses. Because, um, like it's, like she said, like if I'm going to play an old woman, then everyone is going to start seeing me only as an old woman, and which is in a very unfortunate thing. Still happens right now. I mean. Like what? What happened to Diane Keaton? Like she used to be one of like a listers, like quality actors uh, in the sixties, seventies, and eighties, and now she's doing book club, a book club too. The next chapter. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And well, they have. Yeah, they always have to be somebody's mum or somebody's grandmother, as they say in a, a lot of these films. Yeah, and there's so many of them like that, which. You know, they are like they have proper talent and it's just not given the parts that like some the quality of work they can provide. And and I think that is part of it. I think that is something that is but this everything is mentioned a lot. And the fact that this that the characters is playing 
the only notable thing is the fact that she's an old woman. The, and it's something that unfortunately happens quite a lot. Um, I think there was a joke in Bojack Horseman where one of, one of the female characters, Diane, she gets hired as a writer in the show, but she does absolutely nothing in there. But they only hire her so they can excuse some of the like not progressive stuff in the show, but they can say, oh, we had a female character, so it's absolutely fine. And and that was and so that kind of reminded me a lot of that, you know, the uh like a like a creative team half assing it just so they can try to be progressive, but in reality they're not. Actually they're not even providing an interesting outlook or story within the conversation and and because we don't really see Myrtle before this play we don't really see what she has done before to come into this fame but but if you are in the theater world and you are that popular that usually means that you have done at least some good creative work so my interpretation would be that she has done a lot better work before and I think this might be her first time doing something that's going to be in broad on Broadway that it is not equal to her talent. And I do think that this is sort of the crisis that she goes to. Now, that's the thing what happens internally. Now, for the ghost thing is, I don't know. Like I, I anyone's guess. Yeah, it could be just him or her own, like. Everything that we, I just mentioned just manifesting into this dead girl. Oh, maybe it is a real ghost and, you know, tries to possess her, but, you know, she kills the ghost. So maybe she well, gets possessed. I, I think the fact that, like, so many of the spiritualist scenes just never go down well insinuates to me that the ghost isn't real. So, yeah, I like to think of it as, you know, it's her manifesting this person I would, I would just like to see how she got some of the bruises well, then from just flinging her head yeah but you saw that scene in which she came into the writer's room and she I, was I'm like joking yeah. i'm joking you don't have to overanalyze this for christ's no, sake no but it, it takes me to one of the you know one of my favorite sequences is when she goes to again is there another spiritualist and she's like literally like smashing stuff up and you see like the aftermath and it's just you know is she dead yet is she gone and it's just that reaction like oh my god no that's not another spiritualist that uh, she's hiding it uh, she's trying to hide in the writer's uh like hotel i think and then that's where she gets sort of attacked by the and then that's where she's smashing yeah but she's like in a room with like a uh you know she's like yeah, i yeah. want to meet her and she's like this lady takes her up to like an office i didn't know if she was going to have some sort of spirit because that room was no, no that was not her. about spirit that was her trying to find sarah the writer no 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 dave is right no if she went to find sarah because sarah was going to introduce her to another spiritualist yeah but then the attack is happening in sarah's room i think no, this is, no, this is when, this is when she goes up to that room with the blonde lady and then that man and the woman take her out and they're like, we'll take you back to the theater. And it's like after uh, she's I, been like smashing things on the I just don't know anymore. She goes to like that restaurant. I don't like, know uh, anymore. <laughs> she's got the shades on and everything. But anyway, I'm only explaining this for the sake of uh, where I'm leading to is that I think it is interesting that this, I don't want to say it's fil- three films in one, but it is like it could go in so many trajectories. It's like you almost... I'm satisfied with the ending and it's a very effective story about 
yeah, her as a performer and how she feels as a person. But again, it's almost as if all this kind of like dual personality stuff has then almost gone by the wayside. It, maybe, yes, you could say, well, that faded away once she kind of like resolved that within herself. But I think it's just funny that it's like, to me, the kind of buildup and the tension is, oh my God, what's going to happen with this person she's seeing when she's on stage or how is that going to sort of come to a big climax and it doesn't she just becomes drunk and it just never comes back again it's that's what's kind of strange is that you expect it to be kind of like she's on stage and she sees her in the audience or something like that or, or maybe she starts rolling around on the floor getting attacked on stage but it is just, just strange how she just is like nah just drink it away and now i'm becoming it's it's again it's almost like it's one or the other it's like look is the fact that she's like a raging alcoholic the problem or is the fact that she's seeing a dead girl the problem which, which one are we going yeah with? i sort of thought at the end she was going to try and emulate what the the young girl was yeah so uh, sort of like uh symbolically like taking over the kind of thing but nah which again is makes me think of something like birdman in which they're a lot more clean cut with like okay yes go with weird ending but it's very much clear of like this is what his mental state is and this is the sort of line we're going down as opposed to like three different sort of different trajectories which i mean hell even even the premise of what we're just discussing about with this ending insofar as whether or not the the ending is a good thing or a bad thing for the embracing of the 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 mode of expression uh i think has ended up done better in whiplash because at least there's a very clear four line for that film which is just this this musician's undergone a loss of psychological abuse mm. is the fact that he's gone for one final screw you. And I think in a way you could interpret this last performance as like the sort of no screw you. This is sort of my identity. No grounding as to whether or not that is actually going to be the case. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's where like, I, I I'm satisfied insofar as like an enjoyment of the film, but I'm not satisfied in a, I understand, I understand yeah. this is the message I can, preach upon others that ask me about this film like as is happening now on this podcast the thing that made me laugh most with the kind of theater logic was well you could miss the slap uh, but then it won't look real and you won't hear it i'm like there's such a thing as sound effects like you can like the fact he said if he said oh people won't believe it because they will see you don't get slapped i could understand what he was saying but the fact that it is oh we're, we're veering dangerously close to our year 13 performing arts drama logic here davis you have to remind me of that but okay um yeah I, the fact i don't want to but i will oh god well i think i thought the performing arts would come up because there is so much theater talk going on in this but yeah the fact that he's just like um oh if this going where i'm going then jesus christ uh <laughs> but yeah the fact that he says like we need it to happen so we can hear the slap I was like, there are instruments. There's like somebody could just clap on the side of the stage. There's several things you could do. That is what theater is about, is like pretending things are happening, which aren't actually happening. You can dim the lights. Yeah, that's what. Yeah. <laughs> don't want that. Don't want that. Yeah, I just uh, it just was funny to me, especially because the audience seems to be loving it so much, so much of the time. Like, I, it made me laugh when they have the Oh, the audience are idiots. Like, the, half the things they were laughing at insofar as the improv, I was like, that's not funny. What are you doing? Or like, you know, when something goes wrong on stage, you're like, everyone would be like, oh, you know, like you wouldn't be laughing at it. You'd just be like, oh God, that but just went you, wrong. You say that, I... You, you know, uh, when I went to watch a production of Oliver, I laughed when Oliver got hit in the head with a coffin. Well, lid. that's you. <laughs> but um, That is not just me. <laughs> that I'm sure there are other people out there who would laugh at that. But yeah, it just made me laugh how many times, like they like when the writer was coming in and you would just see people like with these weird grins and like smiles on their faces. And I was like, 
what is this play like you said meant to be originally because if it is like a, a a play about like abuse and stuff i don't think you should be like smiling so much about this like are you that thrilled it seemed like the audience like the extras were told you love this actress and you're thrilled to see her there but it also just i find it funny again it's like back in that time of like you're going to the theater and the fact that somebody was wearing like a tiara in the audience and, you know they've got their fur, fur coats and everything like that it's like just a different time, different world. I mean, yeah, that would happen. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Let's be fair. If more people these days own tiaras, I'm pretty sure they would wear them. Yeah. I do I do want to comment on the music because, like, I, I made the allusion to it earlier, but it's very little music in this, but, like, I think they use what they have quite effectively. Yeah. The fact that you only get, like, the sort of piano beats about probably not even halfway into the film, um, just implying that, okay, here's the tension. And then just later on, there's just the more... But that bit where she, again, is that in the same scene I was talking about earlier, where somebody's like, how are you feeling? She's like, dun, dun, dun. And she's like, what is that? Where are they coming from? And I was like, the music was used quite well there. Because I was like, is she actually hearing this? Or is this us like, you know, it's, it's funny. And I do like, uh, one of the things I like with music is, um, just like with theatre, especially back then, they would use the very typical big orchestral like quite celebratory music only to the very beginning and to the very ends it does like a theater production which i really appreciate it and but but yeah and but then also a lot of the music which i think that brings sort of the horror moments some some of the scenes uh, and i like the uses of sound uh, which is something that I come to really appreciate from all films now uh, because of the fact how difficult it was back then to do good sounds. And there was moments like very simple things like footsteps in the like long, big, long, like empty rooms or this sudden noise of the, of, of, of the glasses just falling on the ground and stuff like that, which... Uh, I've known for us right now we kind of see see for granted but for back then especially to a very small film like that very difficult to actually do it effectively and so yeah or like every time with the record player because it was always the same record player playing in her room uh, but it was played I think in three different scenes and each scene was something different like the first one was the production of the room and it was actually quite interesting that she has this big, uh, like, empty space that there is a bed right there, but her actual bedroom is inside the wardrobe room. And it's so tiny and cramped, which uh, they play, they're saying, they're playing that music. It's sort of like the production of a world that is so lifeless almost, but it's still in a very big, luxurious place. And then the second time, I think it was when she brought over the producer and and it felt almost like, not even seductive, it almost felt like a business uh, that they have. And the third time is when the, the ghost girl slash demon whatever attacked her. And that was the last time we were in that house. And so that there were small things like that which I really appreciated, which um, that made the horror element work really well. And yeah, and then and overall, like like Greg, you said, like there's not a lot of music, but every time they did, it felt like there was a purpose to it. 
And and I think that's overall what I feel with this film. Like everything in it has a purpose. I don't understand it all the time, but I can feel that there is a reason behind it. And and yeah, and even the fact that this is my second time watching it and the first time I watched it was uh, 13 years ago. Oh my God, I'm old. <laughs> and, and I'm still trying to figure it out. I think it's a benefit because there's a lot of films that I thought back then were very, you know, complex and sophisticated. And I watch it now again and I'm like, oh, it's just that. Oh, that's... So the fact that I still feel the same way as I felt back then and even more intrigued, it, it, it's a benefit, it's a big benefit, which not a lot of films have now. All right, grab those cassettes, rewind them and play them again because it's time for VHS Corner. So this time I'll be talking us through a little bit about the behind the scenes of this film and other bits related to it. So for a film that we've talked about um, have basically bringing the director towards more mainstream appeal, it's actually interesting to note uh, how much of an issue he actually got had getting the film distributed in the US in the first place. So uh, John uh, Casavetes had major problems getting the picture distributed in the US. When it finally did get released, the seasons were limited, uh, with the film performing very poorly at the box office. Um, so it was only after Casavetes uh, passed away in early eight, 1989. The film was acquired in 1991 by a major, a major American distributor for re-release. Um, however, that doesn't stop um, the positive feeling that this film has uh, by Casavetes, because in a 1978 television interview, he even said himself that this was the best film that he had anything to do with. So not just like made anything to do with, which I can't fault a film for that if that's going to bring a, a significant amount of joy. The film itself was entered into a competition at the 28th Berlin International Film Festival in 1978, where Casavetes was nominated for the Golden Bear. The movie then won two awards at Berlin. Gina Rowlands uh, won Best Actress uh, Silver Bear Award, whilst the picture won the Interfilm Award Otto Debellius Film Award Ex Aqueo. Aqueco. I, I have no idea what that is, but it sounds funky. And finally then, so just to talk a little bit about the, the appearances in this film. So eagle-eye viewers... Uh, of any projects from the 1970s as well whether that be film or theater will potentially recognize some cameos uh, from people such as Peter Falk, Seymour Castle and Peter Bogdanovich. Um, however the main people that we want to talk about um, is the fact that both of the mothers of Gina Rowlands and John Cassavetes appear in the film in acting roles. So Lady Rowlands and Catherine Cassavetes respectively um, both of them also appear in the Roland Cassavetes collaborations, and there are a few of them, um, of Minnie and Moskowitz, A Woman Under the Influence. Um, and I think it's important to note that uh, for Catherine Cassavetes herself, um, this was her final film appearance. Not only is this something that means a lot to John himself, but it means a lot to his mother. And that's where we have VHS Corner for this week. Right, well, yeah, it's good to add some more behind-the-scenes context to this movie. Uh, like I said, we've talked a lot about how it has a lot of influences and kind of style behind it. 
So that leads us nicely into this week's movie vault. So for anyone new to the podcast, we'd like to think of this as a time capsule of memorable movies for someone to dig up in the future. So should opening night from 1977 gain the honor of a place in our movie vault and be remembered for all time. And again, this is another one in which sometimes I think we go in very much knowing the answers. We might get swayed. Um, we might sort of leave it up to the discussion. And I think that, you know, what we've discussed does change a lot in some ways about talking about, you know, the style and, you know, how it's perceived and how all of us have reacted to it. So I think in that sense, it only seems right we go to you first, Stefanos, in terms of what you think, having the most experience with this and knowing a bit more about its legacy and, and the reasons for why certain decisions were made. Well, for this one, um, even though I do love this film and, it, and Casabetes is one of my favorite directors, uh, I do have to say that it's not actually my favorite one. It's not even in my top three. Uh, but with that said, though, even that, like even the fact that it's not like, you know, a five out of five for me, it still is a damn good film. Like it's still the fact that the last hour and a half now we've been discussing about it going through so many different avenues and so many different directions of conversations and that actually was a very interesting symposium of ideas of theories and such it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a testament for it and and for all that I do believe that it does have a place in the vault as says even the fact that it was made back then well not even it was it actually would have been 77 it would have been way before because of independent films take a long time to be made and put together and actually be released so even the fact that it was even before 77 and now we'll we talk about it we see how relevant it can be uh we compared it we compared it to other films that's they're so beloved right now, like Black Swan, Whiplash, A Birdman, and, and I think it's fair to say that possibly the film, the filmmakers of these films, maybe were influenced by this one. I mean, especially Black Swan, I'd be very surprised if it wasn't inspired at all. And and the fa- and also that has like phenomenal performances by Gina Rowlands and from a whole supporting cast, which we haven't talked a lot, a lot about. Uh, but I do want to say, like, even though they're not, like, having, like, the big, almost, like, Oscar clips performances, they're still very good because they they feel part of the world. I never questioned of any of them not being, like, real people or these real people in this specific film. And which is a, which is a rare thing to do, um, you especially after you've seen a lot of other films with a lot of different like styles of acting. You're starting realizing what good acting actually is, and the whole cast brilliance with it. And y- especially because they're touching on sorry to like they're touching on so many of the t- typical tropes of like all these men are having affairs and they're openly saying they love women in front of like their wives and they're fine with that. And everyone is kissing each other on the lips and everyone is like, are you in a relationship with them as well? And there's the whole slapping thing. But again, the the fact that they seem to overcome those kind of stereotypes by, like you said, making them a bit more fleshed out, a bit more real. 
Yeah, and um, and it does feel honest. I think that's the other thing. Like something that Casavetes it was is well known was well known is that there was always a certain level of honesty to how he depicted he presented people. And yes, even though this uh, uh, did say that this isn't my favorite film, but even with that, to what provides, it's actually one of the more interesting films that I've talked about. Um, I think both in this podcast and also in general in the last couple of months. Again, it has been a very dry summer. Uh, and that is not a pun. The only interesting thing about the summer was Barbieheimer. So, so yeah, so this really kind of opened up my interest again to Casavetes. Now I actually brought back all of the films that I have of his and I want to spend a good weekend of rewatching all his films. So, yeah, for all those reasons and for everything we discussed in this episode, I do believe it's worth the being in the vault. And not necessarily of the quality, but because it's, it you know, initiates conversations, see, and uh, that we are able to talk about it. And, and it's not a conversation saying like, oh, this is good, this is bad. We're like trying to find a meaning. And, and I love that when a film does that, because I think that is where it becomes, it's so pretentious of me that's going to say it, but it feels like art. Yeah. Well, it also it made me laugh when you were saying you want to go back to Casavetes' work. It's kind of like, sounds like, you know, Weekend with Casavetes. <laughs> it sounds like his own movie in itself. But yeah, I think that, that that legacy and its effect is a big element of it because I think that as we've had before is, you know, you can go down several routes with this sort of question. Is it, you know, kind of like, it's well worth remembering. It's a good movie at the end of the day, regardless of whether it's the most famous this, the most famous that. I did this, it did that. But then recently we have had some films going in saying, well, you know, this does represent this era of cinema quite well or this type of movie. And again, whether I could say, you know, it would go in on the basis of a performance style film because we rejected All About Eve going in on the basis that we felt the Sunset Boulevard did it better. Um... Whereas I don't think that is quite the same question here because it, it flips things around so much. And as I said before, I don't feel it's quite as much of a, you know, Hollywood, you know, theater star is born type story. Um, so that's, you know, where I was before this all question in terms of like, you know, which way are we viewing it? Craig, what, what, what do you think? Such a cop out. <laughs> I feel like there are elements of this film that I could easily say I don't think it should go in. Like, I think the the lack of, like, story clarity, the lack of interconnection between scenes uh, could be enough for me. However, there are things that I feel like I would be a hypocrite that I, if I didn't acknowledge about this film. Um, specifically because, like, as much as it might not be the highest rated of Cassavetes' work, at the point where we have had the recurring argument recently of are we likely to encounter this kind of this kind of film again? And I think specifically, if it is true what Steph said at the beginning of the episode, which is that there are actual awards named after this guy specifically because of what he's done for independent cinema. Um, Steph is nodding. Good. Um, I think 
it probably means that we should have some of his work specifically in the vault there in the, in the first place. I just don't think we're going to ever talk about one of his films again. Um, and I think that even if there are elements of like lack of clarity that I personally have like a bit of a disdain for insofar as like whether or not I fully appreciate a film. Um, and as much as I don't fully agree with with elements of the argument that Steph made about like we've been talking about this film for an hour and a half, there's lots to talk about it. This is a film podcast. We do that for every film. I think that there are elements of, I, I think specifically this probably is one of the earlier films that does at least invoke a bit of a discussion of uh, what do you think the the core the core meaning of this film necessarily is? Um, and I think because obviously we are a show all about discussion, I think it probably means that we should reward films that I think pursue that above anything else. So I would actually probably say I'm like a 60-40 split, but at the moment the 60% is put it in the vault. Yeah, and that's why, you know, you said I was it was a cop out of me thrown to you, but that's why I wouldn't want to also then give a clear answer and then go to you and be like, well, you know, my decision doesn't matter anyway, kind of thing. Um, well, like, so you're happy to just be like, cool, my decision is discarded. Craig and Steph have made the decision for me. Well, you know, it does help me in terms of like, what where are you guys at with this? Where, what are you thinking? And I think the fact that, yeah, you agreed with Steph in the discussion aspect, I think that's a good point. Um, and I probably would be with you, you know, there is maybe that 40% of me which would think, okay, well, is this the best representation of that? Is it a perfect movie, etc.? Are all of the storylines tied up should they be tied up all that kind of stuff i think that ultimately though yeah there is the element of legacy and you know he's mentioned himself that you know it's one of the favorite pieces of work he was involved in um but also i think yes while we tend to talk for an hour and a half about most films i think sometimes there is a bit more of a struggle or it spends a lot of time being like what was that about why was that character there what are they doing or like wasn't this moment great i think the fact that what steph was alluding to there is that there's been more of a oh let me have my jokes david <laughs> no but they, it's to the benefit of why i think this movie works is to what does this ending mean and there isn't any answer and it's almost like you know fun to go in the vault for the lols of it will continue to make people baffled and not have answers for the rest of time <laughs> I, I do want to make this clear however i'm i'm happy to put this film in the vault can we just have that Please have this as the cap of just, this is our discussion industry done. We could move on to something else. Because if I have to talk about the inner complexities of a performer one more bloody time. But also what Steph said is that it's true. I think this did influence a lot of what we've talked about over the last few weeks, which we rejected Neon Demon and Showgirls for, etc. I'm glad you didn't say it. it inspired all about Eve because I'd be like, David, yeah. buddy. <laughs> no, I think the fact that it inspired a lot of like Birdman, you know, Black Swan, etc. I think that, that that seems to me true. And I think that, again, if we don't get the chance to talk about those films, this type of story is represented in a way. And I don't think, like I said, I don't think it is the same as a kind of Sunset Boulevard as All About Eve. I think it's a different type of story. Um, and it's kind of like a, a psychological kind of like look at somebody, which, yes, is, you know, about the theatre and performance. But I mean, I don't personally buy into the like the inspiration stuff to a great degree. But generally, yeah, I'm, I agree this film should now just go in. Yeah, so... Yeah, we've uh, broken our uh, streak of films not going into the vault. So this week, 
in goes opening night from 1977. Go check it out if you haven't. It's uh, sure to cause discussion. And the fact that it caused Stefanos to still be questioning what it's all about after 13 years, then, you know, it's it's worthy of going in just for that. So (laughs) will there be any more conundrums that we might be having for 13 years? We shall find out in this week's Endgame. Over to Craig. We're in the Endgame now. Okay, end game time. So this is a game very simply called Opening Scene. So I obviously remarked at the fact that the opening of this film very much felt like it just threw you into the middle of the scene, which made me think about films in the past that have very striking openings and very effective openings. So I want to know how effective those openings are when I basically strip away all of the music, all of the images, all of the dialogue, and simply just give you a blunt description of that scene. Can you still connect it to which film it is meant to be from? So this will be done by a turn-by-turn basis. So uh, I will give you a scenario. You have to tell me what film is that scene opening. Clear on the rules? Yeah. Okay, fantastic. And I'm going to say up all the time. (laughs) Up may be there, up may not be there. We will see. But the first thing we need to determine is what it is our our contestants will be playing for. So this will be the coveted film specifically looking at our Halloween episode. So what film will we be discussing this time? Let's find out what our contestants want to put forward. Starting with Steph. Right. I promise it has nothing to do with performance arts. <laughs> right. Uh, even though you were saying like, oh, how can it be about music? Well, also Halloween. There were so many that came into my head. But I'm not going to pick any of them. I'm still going to stick with the one that I have from the very beginning. You resisted temptation. <laughs> oh, it's there. But I will spare Greg from this. So, okay. Um, my film is a recent one. Uh, it's from 2019. And uh, what I could say, it is a horror. Um, Now, why I chose this one is just like with Opening Night, it has a lead that in some way or form has seen people that other people are not able to see and and has been questioned uh, by, by other people around him, around them. And it is a film that didn't do great in the box office, but it has gained a, a cult following. And it, yeah, that's about it. I'm not going to say more because I think <laughs> I don't want to spoil it. Okay, fantastic. So we've got the horror film from 2019. David. So my choice, I've gone for a film from 1982. Uh, my main sort of connection is, again, we've been questioning... The role of the girl in this film, was she real? Is she a demon? Is she in her head? And, you know, one of the theories could be, you know, is she a ghost? And I think many times when we've looked at Halloween films or horror films, we've got trapped in the cycle of zombies, especially a lot of times, you know, a lot of bloody, gory kind of movies. You know, we've had things like werewolves and vampires come up through things like Van Helsing. So I wanted to get away from all of that and get a good ghost story and i think that you know this has a lot of memorable moments in it a lot of uh kind of memorable lines uh one especially which i think when you look at the you know the film we've been discussing today you know you think about something that imprints onto people and they can remember that moment this film definitely has 
that in spades. There's lots of memorable moments. There's one, you know, memorable line especially. And it probably has one of the best uses of like a kind of day-to-day sound, especially at that time, which I think is used to great effect to make something really creepy and kind of stick with people over the years. So yeah, that's my choice from 1982. Okay, so we've got modern horror versus 80s horror. Which will be the winner? We'll only determine that by the end of this game. So as usual, you can choose your own choice or you can choose your opponent's choice. Are you ready, David? Sure. A man walks up to his car and the car explodes. That happens so many films. Rush Hour. (laughs) Am I looking for Rush Hour? I'm not. I'm looking for... I'm looking for Casino. Oh, okay. Yeah, I did think about that. Okay. Are you ready for your first question? It's Casino. (laughs) (laughs) I'm good, I'm good. Okay. A family are about to be mugged but then the mugger is stopped baffled face here from start. yeah i am like hmm okay it's definitely not batman because the family died uh so oh no wait it would have been oh i have is it is it batman the tim burton the first one is that your final answer um it's been a long time since I've seen it. So I think it might be the beginning. Uh, yes, I say yes. That was good to do. That was the correct answer. Uh, I was like, he was stopped. Whether he stopped anything else from happening, that's another question. Yeah, so to be clear, um, specifically the mugger uh, comments on the existence of Batman. So this isn't like a flashback sort of situation. All right, so that is uh, one point to Steph. David, mm-hmm. two people try to rob a diner. Mm. We'll try to rob a diner. Oh my god. Mine's gone blank. Uh I don't know. Holland Drive. Okay, well it's not that. Um Steph, do you have any idea? Pulp fiction. Uh no, it's the history of violence. Oh. See, I wasn't sure if it was like Western or something, but I thought no diner would be like a saloon or something. Yeah. Alright. Steph, your next one. A girl answers a phone. And asks if she's a fan of certain films. Scream. Yep. Okay. David, you ready for your next one? Yes. Two people grow old together. (laughs) 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 Is this thread in the shark? Um, I definitely want to make sure there isn't another one which happens. I mean, no, surely not. Up. Consider the shark, Freddy. <laughs> yeah, it's up. Yes. So if I were you, Steph, I wouldn't answer up to any ones that you don't know anymore. Oh, but can you imagine if it wasn't up? That would be so cruel. <laughs> it wouldn't be the cruelest things ever happened on this show. I was like, Bicentennial Man? No, that doesn't what? happen. What? <laughs> Steph, your next one. We watch a car drive around all the while knowing that there is a bomb inside. Damn it. I'm off. Um, uh, mm. I know the film. Oh, Orson Welles is in it. Um, it's in Mexico with a guy playing a Mexican, but it's not actually Mexican. It's very inappropriate. Um, <laughs> you are describing the film. I know but it's can very. Can you tell me the name? It's uh, something evil. It's something evil. Um, uh, I don't remember um, the, 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 the the real evil. No. Um, I'm gonna have to push you for an answer. I know. I'm gonna have a stroke. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna hate myself. Uh, I'm, Five. I'm gonna. Four, s- um, 
Three, two... Dark Evil. I'll have to accept that as your final answer. And that is wrong. Uh. It's ironic you said you were going to have a stroke because the answer is touch of evil. Oh. At least it was a stroke of evil. That would yeah. be cruel. So at this point, uh, Steph is leading two to one. So it's very possible that David can turn everything around. You ready? Mm-hmm. A guy in a car is waiting for two thieves who have just carried out a robbery. Baby driver? So I'm going to give you half a mark for that because that is also the opening of Baby <laughs> Driver, but that is not what is on this uh, list. Okay. Yeah, so the answer is drive. Which is also part of this name. Yeah. <laughs> the, the name is similar. <laughs> uh, well, uh, actually, Baby Driver had three people coming out of the thinking, bar. <laughs> I was like, is there more people? I was like, I know the husband and wife. Steph, there, yeah. at this point, you, you are still in the lead. So <laughs> I know. I, I would quibble about it at the end if David like beats you on technicalities. Yeah, on a half point. <laughs> okay. Are you ready for your next one? It's Touch of Evil. I, I'd be surprised. Um, the animals gather to witness a baby. Jesus, but now, uh, 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 Lion King. <laughs> yeah, it's Lion King. Uh, David. Yep. We follow a group of people all wearing clown masks as they carry out a job. Um, can't think of any other film that does this. So, The Dark Knight. It is The Dark Knight. Goddamn Lion King. <laughs> okay, Steph, your fifth question. Mm. A woman who is able to run up walls and jump between far, far buildings is running away from the police. The Matrix. It is the Matrix. So with two questions left to go, the scores again. Oh, David is on... Two and, a, uh, two and a half? Two, yeah. two and a half. And Steph is on four. David. Mm-hmm. A group of men in the desert strike oil. Literally. Group <laughs> of um, men in the desert strike oil. And a man is injured whilst doing so. I'll give you that extra bit. Okay. That might help. Can I reenact the scene? It might help him. <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to do this on a recording. Uh, oh, this is this this sounds fun. Uh, I'm a parent of my child. I'm a parent of my boy. You haven't seen this film, have you, David? Are you saying parent? I'm a parent of my child. I'm a parent of my boy. Oh, okay, you bet. Anyway, five, four, <laughs> method acting, uh, three, two, one. Don't know. Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia, that famous film where they strike oil. <laughs> They're in the desert. <laughs> Steph? There will be blood. There will be blood. Uh, okay. Steph? Yes. An officer is interrogating a man about the whereabouts of a missing family. Hmm. Mm, an opening scene of a police man. I didn't say police, I said officer. Oh, oh, okay, that that changes I, things. I think I think that's an important distinction to make here. Oh, okay. Ah, so I imagine military. Okay, 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 okay. Well, his family, his family or a family. I said a family. It doesn't specify who the family is. And it's an iconic one, huh? I I I, I don't know. Um, Five, I, four. It's not. It's not. 
the actual answer, but can I say zero duck thirty? Is the answer I'm looking for zero duck thirty? No. David, do you have any ideas? No, all I can think for some reason is like Incredibles two, because <laughs> that is nope. so expensive. It's not that, but I know that wouldn't be. A... What if I told you the family was Jewish? Oh, uh, Inglorious Bastards! It's Inglorious Bastards. Hans Lander, Christoph Waltz, and again, it's like hard because a lot of these are like they're such like dark, gritty, violent films that your mind doesn't always go to the opening as well. In a way, uh, I was I was trying to think of like. Post nine eleven, like American mm. military. That's what yeah. I was trying to think, but no, that's a good one. That's a really good one, actually. Yeah. So, David, your final one. Although I would say at this point, mm. the scores are set. So this is just about personal pride. Your final one. Two people are drinking beers inside a Harvard bar, as in a bar near the University of Harvard. I got that much, thanks. Oh, <laughs> based on some of your clarification <laughs> questions, I wasn't. Sure. So, <laughs> trying to think which films would be about like studying and learning, but also have a famous opening. No, I can't think of the name. Goodwill Hunting. I'm not looking for Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> Steph, what am I looking for? The Social Network. It is the oh, Social Network. Of course, yeah. For God's sake. So, Steph, your final, final question. Ready? Yes. A man is asking for a favor. Uh, the Godfather. It is the Godfather. It, so it was the favorite part, which kind of. Like... I mean, I could have made it easier. I decided not to say on a special day. <laughs> but with that, uh, final scores of two and a half to five. The winner is Steph. Yay! Second week in a row. Yay! No, it was it was fun. I like this one. And the question is: Will you now like? to make your decision on which of the films. So are you going to go with your choice? Or are you going to go with David's? Mm, should I go with mine? Oh, Poltergeist. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh. I mean, last last week I went with Sarah's. So I think I should do something different or should I continue being nice? I mean, it's up to you. I, I have no horse in this race. Mm. But then again, I am interested to hear you guys talking about that. So I'll go with my choice. Okay. Okay. So tell us a little bit more about your film. And then finally, what film it is that we'll be watching in the next episode. So, uh, like I said, it is a horror film. It's not as much of a... Typical horror. It it's very much it's it's very faithful to what this filmmaker does. He is well known, but mostly on TV. He has done some films. He has, has created a following, but not as big as like other filmmakers. It's a sequel to a very beloved horror film. It has divided fans, but then it depends to what kind of fan you are. I love this filmmaker, so this was very much for me. But I can see why fans of the original film were not into it. It has a, a really well-known actor. And, and just like I said, it has a, the lead which sees people that are not visible to other people. And actually it has a theme of aging as well. And so I think 
One of you already got it. What about the other one? Have you guessed what it is? No, there's a few things circulating in my head, you know, like because we've had so many reboots recently. But yeah, I can't seem to like put my. Mind yeah, let's to just one. pull this out of the misery now. Yeah. So, what is it we'll be watching? Uh, Doctor Sleep. Yeah. Oh, okay. You're right. Doctor Sleep. So, small precursor to this one. Um, so, I told David about my experience watching <laughs> the film before. It actually has a, a scene which genuinely made me feel sick. So, this is going to be fun. Yeah. And as we've said, as you told me as well, has some horrifying concepts i'd say oh yeah it's just outright child murder um okay so dr sleep from 2019 is gonna be our next movie uh quite apt for halloween as well being linked to the shining and being quite scary making craig feel sick so uh you can catch that at the moment on most of your rental services, Amazon, Apple, YouTube, etc. Um, or always worth a check on any of uh, the most common or subscribe to streaming services closer to the time as things can change between recording and uh, near the release. So yeah, Stefanos, have you watched this many times? Is this something you've only revisited a few times? Or um, I don't know if that's embarrassing or not, but I've seen it three times in cinemas. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, in cinemas? Yes, back then. And also, I bought the Blu-ray that has the director's cuts, which has an additional, like, 30 minutes of footage, and it's been re-edited in the way Mike Flanagan wanted it to be. Um, I think either way, both versions are great, so you don't, I'm not recommending, like, one over the other. Uh, but yeah, but then again, I am a fan of Mike Flanagan, and I also wanted to suggest it as well, because it falls really well for you guys as his last show with Netflix will be out in October, the fall of House of Asha. So I think it's kind of becomes now topical now with the season. Like Craig's choice of Monty, uh, Monty, uh, the full Monty <laughs> earlier in the year with their, their popular streaming show that uh, landed. But yeah, and, it, and again, it's quite apt in what we've had throughout the year in terms of flipping between those generations. You know, we've now gone from the 70s to 2019 which kind of similar to when we went to like neon demon etc in which we've like sort of jumped back and forth between something very recent and something more older so we can sort of see those differences more but thankfully we are away from the performance area which i'm sure craig is most happy about so yeah it's gonna be a fun <laughs> yeah because this is a great leap for me <laughs> isn't it? child murder so get ready for halloween it's gonna be those because f- will never grow up and get jobs <laughs> in the, mu- the performance industry <laughs> Right, so yeah, join us next time on our Halloween episode. It's going to be fun uh, with uh, many guests joining us. And yeah, we look forward to having everyone joining the conversation. Uh, let us know if uh, you have any other thoughts about opening night, which made it into the movie vault this week. And we look forward to having you join us next time on our spooky episode. Bye-bye. Bye. See ya. Keep up with the latest episodes of Well Good Movies. You can listen to us on all your usual podcast outlets, including Apple, Google, Spotify, YouTube, and more. Don't forget to follow us, subscribe, and rate us where you can to keep our podcast growing. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Well Good Movies to keep up with the latest news and highlights from all our episodes, as well as tell us what movies you want to be discussed in the future. So what are you waiting for? Go check out the film we'll be discussing in next time's episode. Ex Aquae. Aquae quo.